0: So if you will, if you haven't already, turn to Psalm 83 on your device or in your Bible. Um, Either one is acceptable, so get that on out. We're gonna continue looking through the Psalms. We've got a few more Psalms to go through this summer, and then we will transition back to the book of Matthew come September. So as we start today, um, I just wanna think kinda big picture and, and kinda look at some history. The first thing we think about when we think about history, and as a history buff myself, I think about battles. Uh, Battles are what I, it's probably the boy in me, but I think of battles and I think of all of the, the different wars that have happened. And if by anyone's stretch, there's been thousands upon thousands, maybe even millions of battles in the history of mankind. And one of the things that's true about every single battle is there's five characteristics that if you have them, you win. These are the, I mean, this is just guaranteed. Uh, If you have these, you win. It starts with superior numbers. If you have more people, you usually win. Superior leadership, you have quality leaders, you win. Superior strategy, you win. Superior heart, if you're fighting for something that your heart's in, you win. And then the last is superior technology. And so we know that if you have all of these things, you're going to win. But yet, there are some times where people don't have those and yet somehow win. In looking over all of the thousands and thousands of battles that have been waged, there's about nine, nine out of thousands where they didn't have any of those five and they were able to win. And the reason why these are so memorable is because unlike what usually happens with a superior force and all of these these positives, the underdog is able to win the battle. Not just one little battle, but win the war, which is pretty amazing when you think about it, right? So we we look at that and we go, oh man, that's the way it is. That's so awesome, those nine. But we're forgetting the 999,991 times that the underdog lost. And in every single one of these, it's just a normal battle. Today in our Psalm, Asaph is not describing a normal battle. He's describing not only all of the bad guys that he sees around him right now, but he's going through a nice long list of all the villains and all the enemies that have ever fought Israel. And he says, this is where we are right now. All of our historical enemies, brought down out of the past, and the superpowers that we're fighting right now are all teaming up against us, we're in trouble. No matter how superior our strategy, our leadership, our numbers, our technology, or how bad we want it, it is not going to happen. We are dead men walking. So the question is, what do we do in that situation? What do we do in a situation like that where the enemies are arrayed against us? Do we look for some sort of political help? Do we, we call an allied country? Do we come up with a strategy that's never been done before and hope, against all hope, that the odds are in our favor? The odds, you know, being about winning the lottery three times in the same day and getting struck by lightning a couple times. Those kind of odds? Do we start training up some of our young men to be ninja, navy, seal warriors to take out the enemy? Or do we do something else? Or do we look somewhere else? And, and that's what Asaph's gonna show us. Asaph's gonna show us that our only hope is the Lord. Our only hope is turning to him. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll see that we're actually pretty bad at doing that. So let's get into it. This psalm is a lament, so it's in one of those psalms where something bad has happened and so the writer is, is singing a lament. Think country song, okay? It's not a happy song okay it, it's it's telling a story so you can kind of throw in some Johnny Cash in there if you want but there's this storytelling but there's something unique in this psalm in this psalm there's a call for God to smack him I mean, that that's probably not the biblical term but that's how I read it to smack him there's a call for God to do something and we call this an imprecatory psalm don't worry it's not gonna be on a quiz We call this an imprecatory psalm, and this is asking God to judge somebody, to to have his justice laid on them. And so this is a very unique psalm. This psalm is sandwiched between two very famous psalms. Last week's psalm is the one about the council, the divine council, and there's a lot of debate about what that is. And so that's a very popular psalm. Next week's psalm is very familiar. I think I counted like five or six different worship songs that I've heard that come from that psalm. And it's a very positive up in the heaven song. So come back next week and you can see that psalm as well. But this psalm is sandwiched right in the middle here. It's the last psalm written by Asaph. And it's kind of his going away, he's saying this is my last one, I want you to see what's most important. He's surrounded on all sides. You know what's interesting is that this psalm has actually been used For years and years and years in the christian liturgy every year liturgy being the structure of how we do worship we have a liturgy that we follow here churches have followed that structure for years and years and you know what day of the year this psalm is read good friday because in the picture of it jesus is surrounded by all of his enemies and they are coming after him and that's where this psalm really gets its kind of its teeth surrounded by all your enemies who are actually God's enemies and who want your blood. So this is kind of the setting for our psalm. So what's the point of the psalm? Well, the point of the psalm, the big idea, if you will, is that God will thwart the plans of his enemies in such a way that even his enemies, our persecutors, will believe in him, might even seek him. So this is a really odd way to do things. God's going to overthrow them in order to win their hearts. And there's some, there's some kind of, that just sounds weird. God, destroy them so they'll come to know you. That's an odd way to look at things. And so we're going to walk through how Asaph does that. So that's our big idea. God will thwart the plans of his enemies in such a way that even his enemies, our persecutors, might come to seek God's name. So, as we dig into this, it's important that we see the structure that is in this psalm. When we read the Bible, we want to make sure that we're constantly looking for what the author is putting out there. And these authors, they're not just throwing words together. They actually have a reason and a structure behind what they do. And this psalm is no different. This psalm is what we call a chiastic psalm. It looks like the word chasm with an I thrown in there for good measure. But the word chiasm is a structure that the Hebrews would do when they wrote poetry. So I'm going to show you what this psalm looks like in chiastic structure. So Kyle, if you'll put that up there for me. Okay, so what you see is the first verse and the last two verses go together. They are the same idea. Then the second few verses and the last few verses before the prayer are the same. And so you're building, instead of building to a crescendo at the end, it hits its main point in the middle. And the main point in the middle is surrounded by enemies, think about that. And then you come back out of that to pray to God. So there's this picture, and when we study scripture, you'll find that the more you kind of get yourself in the mindset of the writer, you're going to see structure, and you're going to see form to it, and this was one was just a perfect one, so I I couldn't help but put it up there as a teacher. I wanted you all to see what a chiasm looked like. So now we're going to start into verse 1. So the first thing we see is we see pray for God's action. Pray for God to take action. Verse 1. The psalmist says, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. So this do not keep silence sounds like almost a typo. Shouldn't it be silent? Well, but actually this word in the Hebrew means no noise at all. So it's not like when you hear the child in the room who thinks they're so sneaky because they're not talking, but they're moving around and you can hear that. You can't even hear God moving. Not that God's not just not talking. He's not moving. There's no sound. God is not doing anything. He says, do not hold your peace or be still. It means, do not ignore us, do not be inactive. One, one translation says, do not have a deaf ear or stand aloof. And so the picture here is that God is, God is not doing anything. So he says, please don't do this. One author said it's kinda like when the kid's trying to get dad's attention and dad's eyes are somewhere else, so they go up and they put their hands on daddy's cheeks and move the head, right, to get the attention. This is what the author is doing here. Asaph's saying, God, look here, look here. Do you see what's going on? Do you see this? And I love how this psalm starts with God and ends with God. And one of the things that's most amazing about this is at the beginning of the psalm, when it says, Oh God, that's the word Elohim. That word just means The God. It's very impersonal. It's just a name for God. But at the end, it's Yahweh, which is God's personal name. It's his actual name. And so when you call God Yahweh, it's because you're in with Yahweh and you know him. So there's this move from this impersonal, oh God, help us, to my God is helping us. And that's a cool kind of pattern as we go through this psalm. So, the second thing we see in verses two through four, we see the plottings of the enemies. We see the plottings of the enemies. Verse two, for behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. Notice here, God was silent, the enemies are noisy. God was quiet, the enemies are making an uproar. This uproar is the word growl. And so they're, they're making noise, they're, they're, ch- they're chomping at the bit, they're, they're coming after you. Charles Spurgeon says, The enemies are by no means sparing of their words. They are like a hungry pack of dogs, all giving tongue at once. So sure are they of the devouring God's people that they're shouting even before the feast has begun. They're dancing, they're celebrating their victory before the game has even started. It says they raised their heads, that's that's actually more like reared their heads, so you think about the enemy's rearing back and they're going, we're coming at you. They're so confident that they're exalting themselves and saying, hey, we've already got this, we've won, this is it, we're going to destroy them. They're a boastful crew, They're, they're, they're celebrating the victory before it even starts, and here's why. Verse 3, they lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. These crafty plans are, are them conspiring. They're in cahoots with each other. They're making shrewd plans. And the treasured, the treasured ones simply means your cherished individuals. So you see how Asaph's saying, you love us, God, but they're, they're coming after you. They're coming after us which means they're coming after you. We'll see this a little more clearly in a minute. Spurgeon again says, the ripest fruit will be most pecked by the birds. Those who have the most of God's image will be the ones that the world holds in contempt the most. This idea that if we look like Jesus, we're offensive to the world and they will come after us because honestly, they can't touch Jesus. They already tried that. It didn't work out very well. But for us, they're coming after us because of who we represent and we see this here. Verse four, they say, the enemies say, come let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. Samuel Rutherford, a a Puritan about this passage said, if you belong to the village, the village dog wouldn't bark at you. I think we can even go farther and go, if you belong to the village, the village dog is not gonna come attack you. This idea of the Israelites, we're gonna wipe them out. They don't belong here. We're gonna destroy them. But you know what's kind of ironic here? I can say the name Israel, and everybody in the room knows who I'm talking about. But if I say Moab, or the Ammonites, or the Hagarites, or all those other names that I made Mike have to pronounce, thank you Mike. (laughs) I say all those names, and a few of you Bible scholars in here, you Bible students will go, I know who that is, that's the son of this person. But most of us are like, "What? what, who are those people? So it's kind of ironic that their whole goal was to wipe out Israel, but yet we're still talking about Israel, and only the Bible teachers are talking about Moab and the Amorites and the Amalekites and the Hagarites. Isn't that how God works? So it kind of backfired on them, the exact opposite of what they planned happened. So there's no tolerance here. There's no putting up with Israel. It's not live and let live. It's wipe them off the face of the earth. One scholar said that this come let us that we see in this passage, the very first three words that they say, is a lot like what we saw at the Tower of Babel. This is no different. There's nothing new under the sun. The people at the Tower of Babel wanted to be in charge, and so they were going to raise up and be making a name for themselves. And then God scatters them and, and creates the languages that we see to this day. And right here, it's the same thing. They want to be God. They want to destroy God. They want to wipe God out, but they can't touch him, so they're going to go after his people instead. So the question is, as believers, as those who claim to be believers, is there enough evidence that people would come at you that you're a Christian? You think about that. The Israelites made themselves stick out. They looked different. They looked very different than the people around them. They ate different things. They worshiped different ways. They dressed differently. They had different priorities. Where are we on that spectrum? Charles Spurgeon, writing nearly 150 years ago, to his church, he said, The fact is that most of us are inferior to the early Christians, who, as I take it, were persecuted, were murdered for being thoroughly Christian. And we are hardly Christians at all. That's what Spurgeon's saying. So where are we on that? Do we fit in with this culture or do we stick out? Is there something different about us? We've talked about this, when we did 1 Peter, we talked about how we are foreigners, we are meant to be exiles here, we're not meant to blend in. You think about an ambassador to a foreign country, they go there, they stick out, they live in the embassy, they work in the community, they look different, they talk different, and they are the connection, for many people, the only connection between that country and them. That's what we are. We are ambassadors to this dark world. So how are we doing with that? Do we just look like the average American or do we look a little different? Okay, that's, that's not the point of the sermon. That was a little side note. <laughs> the next thing we see in verses five through eight is we see the greatness of the opposition. So now he's gonna lay out what that, what's against them. It says, for they conspired with one accord against you they make a covenant interesting that it all up until this point it's been us 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 and now it says they're going against you they're in one mind one heart and this word covenant means a treaty so they've made a treaty against god and his people against god and his people now what's interesting here is unlike a lot of people that we see maybe in our communities they're actually knowing that they're going against God because he says they made a covenant to attack you, God. Many in our culture don't even know that they're mad at God. If they give God any thought, they'd say there is no God and I hate him. But that's about it. So they don't even know necessarily that they're rebelling against God. They're just rebelling. So this is very clear for Asaph. These people are the ones that are coming after us. We don't always get that clear differentiation knowing that these are the people that are coming after us. A lot of times it just kind of seems to pop up in different places. But what's interesting here is this is the only time in the entire Bible that a covenant is against somebody. Most of the time, a covenant is between two people to do something together. We're going to protect each other and so on. This is a covenant of we're going to wipe these people out. They've made a covenant to destruction. And you know, this, this hatred of the Israelites cannot be explained being with, dealing with land or dealing with their, their wealth, because that's not why Israel matters. That's not why Israel is the one that they're going after. They're going after them because of who Israel's God is. And again, they can't touch God, so they will try to destroy Israel. Psalm 2 talks about how the, the goal of the nations is to rage against God. And again, they can't touch him so they'll settle for us. And do we see this today? Yeah, we do. People don't like him, they don't like God. They can't get God to change his mind so they, they come after us. I think about um, this last week in, in Nigeria there was a, a Christian school where militants came in and rounded up children and kidnapped them and killed many of the teachers. The school was not actively evangelizing Muslims. It was not going out and uh, telling the, the different rebel groups and the other religions that were in that country to stop doing it. They were just minding their own business. So why were they attacked? Because they stand for the God of the Bible, and that is offensive. And it has been throughout the history of the church. Christians were killed not because they were trying to overthrow governments. They were killed because of who they stood for. And what's interesting is every time Christians are killed for what they stand for, the church grows. See, all of sin is, all of sin is fighting against God. And so we look at it and we say, oh yeah, those, those, those Nigerian, those guys were bad. They're, they're rebelling against God. It's no different than what we do. When we seek our own way, when we try to do it in our own strength, when we say, God, I got this, you go do something else, it's the same root problem. All of sin is rebellion. All of sin is lack of submission to God. So this this picture that we have here is this group wants to take them out. This group wants to destroy them. So verse six, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gibal and Ammon and Amalek and Philistah with the inhabitants of Tyre, Asherah has also joined them and they've strong arm of the children of Lot Selah. So there's 10 different enemies here. This is a lot of enemies. If I had a map and I put it up on the screen, you'd see this is everywhere. And it's like two deep worth of enemies surrounding the Israelites on every side. See, we have a hard time with this as Americans. You know, two of the sides of our country are surrounded by water. And even then, the two countries to our north and our south have never really been that aggressively against us. So we have a hard time seeing this. Israel grew up surrounded by their enemies and this picture of the enemies are constantly there you know for most of our history the 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 oceans have kept enemies at bay and so this is a weird kind of way to get our mind around this we've never had this the last time our country was invaded was the war of 1812 last time our country was attacked on the mainland was out there at fort stevens in 1942 so that's it so we haven't experienced what Israel's experiencing and has experienced for years. But we can learn, based on how they respond to this, what we should do in the situations we find ourselves. So the first thing we see is we see a list of historical enemies. The first nine enemies listed here. Edom. Esau, fathered the Edomites. Okay, Ishmaelites. These are the descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn. Moab, a descendant of Lot. The Hagarites were a prosperous people that were known for not wanting anything to do with the Israelites. Gebla, we think, is a coastal city to the north. Ammon was the father of the Ammonites, who were also a descendant of Lot, living east of the Jordan. Amalek, a descendant of Esau. Philista was the Mediterranean, where we get the Philistines. That's where Goliath comes from. And then Tyre is another nation to the north. So all of these nations have one thing in common, besides being human, they have one thing in common. They hate Israel. They at one point wanted to wipe Israel out. I mean, Philistines, they tried it over and over again. It was just the thing that the Philistines did. It was their hobby. <laughs> then we get to this one in verse 8. Asher or, As- Asher, or something like that. This means Assyria. So now why, why I'm pointing this out is because Assyria is the superpower in Asaph's time. This is the group that comes into the north, destroys the northern kingdom. This is the big superpower of his time. And so what Asher is doing is he's saying, it's like someone went all through our history and grabbed up all of our enemies at their strongest and the biggest enemy now, and they're taking us out. They're after us. Remember, these, these nations are doing the work of their father, the devil. And so he's saying, this is a bad situation that we find ourselves in. This idea of the strong arm of Lot is saying Assyria is doing what Lot's kids are doing, which is trying to destroy Israel. This is not a simple disagreement about theology. This is, we want to wipe them out. You know, we don't feel this, again, we don't feel this in America. It is a rarity that we will be killed or even harmed physically, or even harmed financially for our belief in God. It does seem like there are cases that are happening, and maybe they're happening more often, maybe not. But this is not just simple people don't like you because you're a Christian. It's they want to murder you. They want to kill you. This is genocide that is being proposed on the Jews. So we have to understand this is serious business here. And so I found this quote by Thomas Watson. He says, A true saint carries Christ in his heart and the cross on his back. Christ's kingdom on earth is the kingdom of the cross. Christ and his cross are never parted. Persecution is the legacy bequeathed by Christ to his people. We are all reigning, but the apostle tells us suffering must come before the reigning. Was Christ's head crowned with thorns, and we think ours will be crowned with roses? See, we we need to understand that this is not abnormal to be a Christian and to be persecuted for what you believe. It's actually the way it always is. We are living the abnormal right now in that we can gather together and we can do this. So what what does this mean for us? Is this just something where we go, okay, you know what, Pastor John, just go, go, go to someplace else and preach that to people that are being persecuted for what they believe and being killed for what they believe. Go preach that to them. It doesn't work here in America. But it does, and here's why. See, when we're confronted with something happening to us that we don't like, we turn to a few things. We turn to, hey, you know what? I'm gonna appeal to the Supreme Court. You know what? I'm gonna gonna write a letter, because I got rights. I have a constitution that says this. And those are all incredible gifts from the Lord. We need to make sure we thank him for that. However, those things can be used both for good, and for evil they don't last in the history of the world constitutions don't last ours is the longest and boy is it being attacked right now but when we put our trust in something man made that thing is going to let us down eventually so notice what asaph does not do here asaph does not go and say hey we have we have these rules stop you know we have this coalition of countries we have the United Nations of Israel. Don't do this. Because here's the thing What is the heart of man? The heart of man is wicked. And when you get groups of wicked people together, they don't break out in worship and Bible studies, they break out in war and genocide and hurting those that they can hurt. So, right now, yeah, maybe we're in the twilight of religious freedom here in America. Maybe we're not. But either way, our hope is not in the writings of the founding fathers. Our hope is not in conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Our hope is not in a president that agrees with what the Bible says. Our hope has to be in God and God alone. Because ultimately, that's our problem. See... I don't know about you guys, but what what I do is when I have something come up that doesn't go the way I want, I try to solve it myself. And maybe I tag a Bible verse on afterwards, or afterwards I'll pray and say, thanks God for, you know, me being awesome, and I figured it out. (laughs) Or I get stuck, and then finally I turn to prayer. You know, Friday on my day off, we took our kids up to Multnomah Falls, because you live in Oregon, you should go to Multnomah Falls at least once. Uh, My wife had lived here her whole life and never been up to the top. So, you know what, you can counsel her afterwards. (laughs) But we walked up to the top. But on our way there, we got, so we're on on 84 and we're traveling out there and they have those big signs and it says, full. And I was like, oh man, it's Friday, why aren't these people working? (laughs) Wait, I wasn't working, so... So I go, oh man, what are we gonna do? Like all of Portland wants to go on Multnomah Falls today. So we got off the freeway and we got on the little, the, the Pacific Gorge, the Gorge Highway, the, the scenic highway, which is awesome, and we were driving that back. We're like, okay, we're gonna try the parking lot. And We pull up and the parking lot's full. So we're like, oh man, Lord, what are we gonna do? What? I didn't even say Lord, I just said, what are we gonna do? And so Katie's Googling, trying to find other hikes, and you know, we're totally getting along and smiling and happy with each other. Mostly I was the one that was unhappy because I was trying to figure out what do we do? And so we drove one way and then we drove the other way and then we came back and finally we sat outside the parking lot for a bit and some cars came out and finally we got a parking spot and we're hiking and we're up towards the top you know, after 20 or 30 minutes and Katie goes, man, I forgot to thank the Lord and thank him for the parking spot that I asked for. And I went, oh man, I'm a pastor and I didn't even pray but my wife did. And I thought about that, and I know it's, it's insignificant. A parking spot to go on a hike is really very, very low on the priority list. But isn't that our mindset with things? We try to solve it with our own strength before even, even approaching God, bothering God. Yeah, you know, he's got galaxies to keep spinning, and he's got people to save, and he's got all sorts of stuff. But what does it say? It says in the Bible that he will hear our prayers, and he cares for every single part of us. If he cares for the flowers, if he cares for the the animals, he cares for his peak of creation, us. And so I look at it and I go, man, that was terrible of me. Why didn't I take it to the Lord? See, this is where the psalm pauses. There's that word selah right there in verse 8. So what Asaph would have done was he would have sang this song and right here, musical interlude. And that would have been a clue for the people listening to go, How do I respond? How do I respond to this? Do I start making plans of how I'm going to fight back? Do I come up with some strategies? Or do I take it to the Lord? Well, Asaph wouldn't have made him sit for too long, because he starts right into verse 9. And this is where Asaph starts his teaching. See, this psalm is teaching us something. This psalm is teaching us it's not going to work if we do it in our own strength. It's only going to work if you do it in the Lord's strength. So verse, uh, the next thing we see, 9 through 12, the great acts of God in Israel's history. So the first thing he does, the first thing he says after all of this enemies lined up against him is he says, God, remember what you did in the past. Look at what it says. Verse 9, do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jibben at the river of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor who became dung for the ground, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalumma, who said, let us take possession of ourselves, of the pastors of God. So this is where his mind goes. His mind goes immediately to, God has taken care of us in the past. God, do it again. Has God taken care of small, insignificant things in your past? Has he taken care of parking spots? Maybe you haven't recognized it, but he has because there's not a single molecule in this universe that is outside of his control. Start looking for what he's doing and how he's blessing you and you'll only see more and more and more. So as we're having our, our, our family time in the van before we park, my mind should have gone to the Lord has been good. He's gonna be good. Whatever we end up doing, even if we don't go to Multnomah Falls, we'll find something to do, and it'll be great. So we forget that. Now, I love this this section here. He just lists all of these people like you're supposed to know who they are. I love it. It says, who became dung for the ground. Dung means poop. Okay, I'm gonna say that. All right? So our translations wouldn't say that, but that's what that word means. What this is saying is it's not like He's saying, make them into poop. This is a unsanitized view of warfare. You know, we think about it, and maybe we think of movies where somebody dies and there's a little bit of blood and there's sad music in the background. No, this is, this is destruction. He's saying, wipe them out. Their, their bodies are gonna become food for the animals, which is how most wars end. This is a non-sanitized picture of this. And, and these people that he brings up, he brings up these people, and some of these stories are not PG, okay? They, they, are, they are graphic illustrations of how God either used Israelites or he used supernatural means to wipe out his enemies. But the picture here is God wins. God is victorious. So we see the Canaanites as this first group, um, and it's, it's Sisera and Jabin. This was from Judges chapters 4 and 5 where Deborah and Barak destroy these, these nations, the second group is the Midianites with their chiefs Oreb, Zeb, Zebah, and Zelmana, who Gideon destroyed. Notice here that the judges are not mentioned. It didn't say, hey God, raise us up a leader and go do your thing with the leader. No, he says just wipe them out because ultimately these judges, these kings, these rulers of Israel were only victorious because of God. They were only victorious because God did it. And the same thing goes for us, to. If we're going to be victorious, it's because God does it, not because of us. This imprecatory psalm right here is when it gets hard to hear. It points to the fact that God is in charge. This is not us taking revenge. It's God making his name great. It's God being just. See, these psalms allow us to take our anger and hand it to the Lord, and then it becomes his and we relocate the enemies. The enemies are not ours. When somebody comes at you because you're a Christian, we need to understand rightly that they're not coming at you because you stink. They're coming at you because of you smell good and you look like your savior. That's the thing, and when we, when we fix that, now we realize they're mad at God, and it's not, nothing they're gonna do is gonna change what God's doing, nothing they're going to do is reach God. So they're coming after the easy target, which is me, which allows me to start having compassion and sympathy because they're, they're going to ultimately fail. And so that's where Christianity offers something our world cannot offer. Our world right now is all about, you did this to me, or you did this to me in the past, or your past relatives did this to me. So I'm going to punish you. Our response is compassion and sympathy because there's no forgiveness there. There's nothing. This anger at God, this striking out at us to try to get to God is ultimately gonna be fruitless and it's gonna destroy them. And this is the point of this psalm. I mean, we saw that with Jonah, right? Jonah sitting there, got his popcorn ready, ready to see the Ninevites destroyed and he gets mad that they repented. See, the, the Lord's anger is meant to lead people to repentance, it's meant to fix the relationship because ultimately that's what God wants. Verses 13 through 16, we see the shaming of the enemies. Verse 13, oh my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. This is the first time that Asaph calls God my God. There's a personal connection here. He says, my God, my God, that I have a relationship, do this. Make them dead whirling dust is like tumbleweeds chaff is the part of the the stock that comes off and is dead make them like dead weeds don't give them any life and then verse 14 as fire consumes the forest as the flame sets the mountains ablaze this is unrelenting destructive judgment think about how scary fire is when it's out of control we we know a little bit about this And then this time, they didn't have fire departments, they didn't have helicopters, they didn't have planes, they didn't have fire retardant, they just had to let the fire run its course. When I was hiking with the family on on Friday, we were up at the top of Multnomah Falls and you can just see the damage done by fire. But what's crazy about it is fire's indiscriminate too. There would be a tree that was burned, charred, and all the ones around it aren't even touched. And then you go a little farther and there's all of these burned and one not touched. It's the weirdest thing. But fire moves fast. And when we think about it, we think, well, i got to get to high ground. i got to get away from the fire. But honestly, we can't outrun fire. Fastest man alive, Hussein Bolt, he ran 23 miles per hour, but he could only do it for about 100 yards. Fastest woman ever was 21 miles an hour. Everyone under the age of 40 in the room, the average is 6 miles per hour. Downhill, right? (laughs) At least that's for me, right? Fire, however, through a densely wooded forest with no wind help can move six miles an hour. With wind, it can go up to 35 miles an hour. And through an open field where there is no trees, it can get close to 40 miles an hour. And that's scary. You can't outrun that. Maybe I was thinking about the hike on Friday or maybe it was for this sermon. I don't know. But I looked up how to survive a fire when on a hike. And one of the things it said was it said, don't try to outrun the fire. You will not outrun it. It says many firefighters have lost their lives because they've tried to outrun it. And it said never, ever, ever go uphill because fires move faster uphill than they do downhill, which I didn't know that. So this idea of this, it's going to catch you. It's going to get you. And So he's praying, Lord, go get them like a fire. It's just going to be inevitable. There's nothing they can do to outrun it. And then verse 15, he continues, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Notice verses 13 through 15. These are all supernatural responses. Not armies, not not training up, not walls. Instead, they're acts of God, like insurance companies would call them. These are the acts of God. Lord, through your fire, through your tempest, turn them to you. You know, for us, we look at this and we go, this is repulsive, God, you're telling, you're telling them to wipe these people out? But to the ancients, if we didn't ask that, it would be repulsive. To say, these people want to kill us, God, stop them, destroy them, is preserving us. It's, it's a correct response to that, God cares for me. When people cease to tell God what they're needing, what, they, what, they're, what they're feeling, now you're looking at, are, do they really know God? See, the psalmist is not asking for God to give us the tools to kill the people that are trying to kill us. Instead, he's saying, God, you take care of it. God, it's yours. Remember what Romans 12 says, do not take revenge, my dears, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, said the Lord. So this this is Asaph going, God, it's on you. You do it. Verse 16, fill their faces with shame. That means to cover their faces with disgrace that they may seek your name, O Lord. Interesting here is that he says, shame them so that they'll turn to you. This seek means to strive, to chase after. So he's saying, shame them, disgrace them, so that they'll turn and come to you. These two verses really show us, these last two verses show us the point of why Israel existed. One is for God to say, this is what it's like to worship me, and the other to say, everyone come and be a part of this nation. This was the point of Israel's existence. And so, Asaph's saying, God, return to that. And then finally, verses 17 and 18. This is a prayer for God's action. Verse 17, let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone whose name is the Lord, our most high over all the earth. So this, when I first started reading this a week ago, week and a half ago, this verse just mind-boggling to me. You know, it was like, Lord, kill them so that they'll know you. That just doesn't make sense. How, How does that make sense? And so I started looking at some of the Psalms, and this is in a lot of Psalms. Psalm 59, 13 says, consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth, Selah. Destroy them so that they will know to follow you. How can we get our minds wrapped around this? This is, this is complex because, see, there's, this is the dance that we see in the Bible. One is that God is just, and he will right all wrongs. Evil must be punished. But on the other side, we see God is a God of grace and mercy. And through Jesus' death on the cross, the sins will be punished in Christ and not in us. And so this, this picture is right here in the heart of this. See, what he's saying is, you know what, Lord? Wipe them out. And as they're being wiped out, they're gonna go, oh my gosh, there is a God in heaven, I repent. And it might be their last breath, but at least it's a breath, and at least they're walking into eternity with Christ, as opposed to the opposite, which is leave them alone, leave them in their sin, and then they're on the way to hell. See, the purpose of the violence here, when God's in charge of it, is not retribution or vengeance, but God's gracious will. He wants people to see that He is God, and He wants them to see it so that they will be saved before it's too late, and that's the picture that we see here. It may be a pipe dream in our world to say, oh, there will be hope and everything will come around. What God's gonna do is God's gonna say, I'm gonna take all the wars and I'm gonna stop them. I'm gonna break them down and we're gonna have peace, but we only have that through Christ. We can only have that through him. So we pray for justice, we pray for grace, all together for everyone. We pray this. Because ultimately, there's two options for every single person. There's conversion or there's destruction. Those are the two options. And I love that Asaph here tries to remind us of what we forget. And that is people will only seek the Lord after they've first been laid low. There's a sense in which God must defeat us before he can save us. And isn't that what we see with the church? The church gets brought low through martyrs and through Christians being killed only to spring up out of the ashes. to like a phoenix springing up out of the ashes with new life. McLaren says, but there is a deeper desire in the psalm's heart than the enemy's destruction. He wishes that they would be turned into God's friends. He wishes for their chastisement as a means to the end of the friendship. Shame has weaned many men from their idols, and has put them seeking after the Lord. The punishments inflicted by heaven upon wicked men are primarily intended to humble and convert them. So this is the mystery of the imprecatory psalms. The psalmist out of one mouth, is, out of one side of his mouth, is saying, "Wipe them out." Out of the other, saying, "Save them," because ultimately that's the way we should pray. Lord, your justice be done. Right all the wrongs, and Lord, save them to you by whatever means necessary. So what we see in this psalm is we see a warning for those who are oppressive and and persecuting and and killing of Christians. The warning is God is going to come. And not only is he going to come at the end of time, but it's going to be like a fire. It's going to be like a hurricane. So the warning for the emperors and the tyrants is you better stop persecuting God's people. And then next we see for us, God's people will never be destroyed. He will vindicate his name. No one dies and gets away with it. Instead, God will have his day. So we see this most clearly in Christ, don't we? He was supremely surrounded by enemies on all sides who just wanted to destroy his name. They killed him, but yet God raised him from the dead. And then God answered the prayers of the people right here in Christ in that he's bringing peace. He is the one that brings peace with us and God, but he's also the one that will bring peace throughout the world. And look at what this message, remember in Acts 2 when the, the people first heard this message that God is just but he's also merciful? Their response is, what do we do now? What shall we do? And this is where we're at right now. We are surrounded by a hostile world that's only going to get more hostile. We can confidently pray this psalm, knowing that God who rescued Israel, how many times? More times than we can count, is the same God that wants to rescue and care for us right now. We need only put our trust in him and not in the things of this world. And that includes the way we think things should go. And that includes our own efforts Take it to the Lord, he cares for you, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by this message, we are humbled by this picture, that Lord, if it weren't for your grace, we would be on the enemy's side. We would be on the side that would be killing and persecuting your people. It's only by your grace that we are where we are right now. And so Lord, I pray with that humble posture, that, Lord, we would plead with the many enemies of your name that we have, that we will encounter this week, this, even this afternoon. I pray that, Lord, with a humble attitude and with a humble heart, that we would plead with them to be on God's side. Lord, to, to not be on the path to destruction. And, our Lord, I pray that if anyone here is on that path to destruction, that, Lord, they would choose to follow hard after you. And Lord, that would be the, the decision that needs to be made. So Lord, I pray that you would work on our hearts continuously, Lord, as we sing this psalm now and as we worship together. Lord, we give you the praise in your name. Amen.